my grandmother was Austrian. Of course, she would have been Austrian under the old Austrian Empire. I'm about as far away from this idea of outside of Cork as you could get. Welcome to Continental Riffs, a series of conversations between pairs of artists, makers and producers that considers Europe through a cultural lens. Objects and experiences chosen by the guests punctuate each episode as they consider ideas, memories, emotions and perhaps realisations that come to them through thinking about the continent of Europe. This edition's guests know each other for some years, as you will hear. They are steeped in the world of making and presenting art. Aideen Barry is a renowned multidisciplinary artist and teacher with an award-winning Irish and international practice. She is an elected member of Ireland's Aesthana and Royal Irish Academy. And Seamus Keeley is a curator, artist and writer, a former director of The Model, home of the Nyland Collection in Sligo here in Ireland and of the Salzburger Kunstverein Contemporary Arts Centre in Austria. These days, he's executive director of Oakville Galleries in Canada. And talking with him in Galway at the time of recording this Continental Riffs, it was obvious that Canadian-born Seamus very much considers himself Irish. And, as it happens, Aideen and Seamus started their conversation by thinking about place and people, about their own families and Europe. Before then moving on to sacred and safe places, mythologies and folklore, making exhibitions and films, history and inheritance, along with RTE Children's Television in the 1980s. My grandfather Malachi went on his first holiday to Venice and he was talking with the receptionist who didn't speak a word of English and this young woman with dark eyes and dark hair came over and started translating for him in Italian and he turned to her and thanked her and was smitten immediately and so began meeting with her in Venice, of course always escorted by her parents. They exchanged addresses and they began to meet at Catholic congresses throughout different parts of Europe. In 1937 or 1938, she had just come back from a Catholic Congress and the house in Suchahorne, which is this village I visited actually, in Czech Republic now and would have been in a very heavily conflicted area at that time. The house was occupied by Polish soldiers. So they had come in and were living there and everything was heating up to the Blitzkrieg with uh, the Germans about to invade as well. The Nazis were coming. Yeah. And so my grandfather came down and married her in the little church in Suchahorny. Wow. And took her back to Ireland before the war started. So she spent the rest of her life in, in Dublin. She never spoke of the, the catastrophe. She lost her brother in the war. Her mother came over after the war to live there with them. I was very close to both of them. Had a funny accent, but she made the best cakes. Magic. And what about you? What's the European appeal? I'm about as far away from this idea of outside of Cork as you could get. I'm from a working class background. People in my family are from Cork. They go back generations. So moving outside of even the south side of the city to the north side of the city was like crossing a border (laughs) effectively. So this idea of Europe was kind of an anathema to what I was brought up in. But yet being exposed to... Eastern European film through popular culture as a kid and kind of seeing, I suppose, the fall of the Berlin Wall and Europe then opening up 
we were already a member of the European Union or the EC long before I was born. But suddenly things started operating where we started joining the Eurozone. There was options to go into Europe and work. And then, of course, when you become an artist, you're already then bombarded with these philosophical approaches that are really refreshing and are opening up and expanding your horizons. I was the first generation, effectively, that didn't emigrate. Now you could go to a European city for a holiday break. And now we're in the middle of war, of course, with what's happening in Ukraine. But the European Union brought 60 years of peace. And when you grew up in a country that was at war in the north and you see the benefits of being part of the European Union, you see the benefits of peace processes, mm-hmm. and you see the benefits of economic opportunity and dealing with these problems in a much wider kind of way, it's only a positive thing. And the exchange of ideas. Exchange of ex- ideas mm. is everything. Yeah. Understanding different ways of being. Yeah. Bizarre how things move in kind of serendipitous kind of circles, you know, where where we started in our friendship and where we've ended up. If we closed our eyes, we could imagine we're back on that terrace in Salzburg, the Salzach River, and yes. talking about Beckett. I suppose Beckett is the beginning of the journey. For us, uh, in our friendship, certainly, right? Yeah. So it's 2007, and I am in Canada in the BAM Centre on an Arts Council of Ireland uh, residency. And I am in the studios upstairs and downstairs in the Walter Phillips Gallery is some Canadian curating a show about Beckett. And I'm like, who is this guy? (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't long after the Beckett centenary, the air was potent with Beckett. And it was great to see people like Stan Douglas. Also, serendipitously, there was great to see Dorothy Cross's Chiasm. And I am actually in the front row of Dorothy Cross's Chiasm as a first-year art student, watching it in St. Enda's Handball Alley in Galway where we are now recording this conversation. I titled it 18 Beckett because it had been 18 years since he had died. It was like this marker of the absence of Beckett that came out of influences one could uh, associate with, with Beckett's work. But then I think our conversations continued as well because you were in Ireland and you were working in the Nyland, the model Nyland. Yeah, at the, one of the first exhibitions that I brought there is called Medium Religion with Boris Groys and Peter Weibel. They curated it in Zika M in Karlsruhe in Germany. Mm. I'd seen it there. The blasphemy Lose. law yeah, was being, being implemented. Uh, implemented. Yeah. The exhibition confronted some topics of blasphemy, but mainly it was about how religious structures were also taking on new media and new forms of information distribution and how artists were responding to that. And so there is one set of sculptures, for example, he was Korean, beautiful disco Jesus sculptures are based mm. on the Jesus over Rio I de remember Janeiro. remember them, yes. And yeah. with the arms outstretched. Yeah. And we had so many visitors to that show and mm. so many monks and people studying theology and people would come in and they would leave their uh, religious icons in, in the gallery and would stay with the, with, the, with the artwork. They weren't treating it as artwork, they're treating it as something like sacred. A site, a site of pilgrimage. Yeah. People were able to come in and experience the exhibition as something that was in many forms critical of ideology as it pertains to religion, but then also experience their sacred relationship, whatever their beliefs were. You know, I think that's quintessentially Irish, actually. Mm. It seems as a contradiction, but it's just a 
very elegant paradox. It's older though, isn't it really? Like some of these systems of belief system are like pre-Christian and that's, there's something that's almost connected to an older knowledge or an older way of being, right? That, so yeah. I was just yesterday again visiting the Holy Well in Sligo. Mm-hmm. I've never been there. I don't mm-hmm. know. I have. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And now distinctly remember bringing Boris Groys there, this philosopher, wow. also Haron Faraki, this mm-hmm. very uh, influential German filmmaker and avant-garde filmmaker. Ilya Kabakov brought him there as well. Wow. And they, they well, I shouldn't say they all loved it. Uh, Ilya and Ilya Kabakov loved it and he made drawings based on it. Boris Groister from East Germany and the Soviet Union, quintessential atheist philosopher, mm-hmm. he just looked at me and he said, there is an aura. <laughs> 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 you know, he acknowledged it, this nature of the cathedral in the woods, something that really grabs the imagination, I think. And have you, has that kind of translated to your, how you approach space that communicates through iconography? Something else, like a message of resistance. I think of Khalil Rabah and your project in the Salzburg Kunstverein uh, in Austria. So Khalil and I had been talking before the pandemic. We settled on this project that he had realized in different parts of the world called the Palestinian Museum of Natural History and Humankind. There is no Palestinian Museum. Yeah. And this was the whole point, you know, this nomadic project that touches very elegantly on this great absence. And, of course, all the geopolitical background is there without it being represented. The exhibition itself is a collection of objects, toys, glasses, silverware, pots and pans, uh, shopping carts that Khalil has picked up from different markets uh, the people have left behind and people were migrating, sh- certainly people who are refugees. There are a lot of these kind of kitschy objects mm-hmm. and he can arrange them together so you get this meeting between color, uh, between different associations and so on. But in all, it's it's a very powerful exhibition based on objects that are, that are filled, filled with an aura in themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, all these different auras that are placed together, uh, you can sense th- the family histories, you can sense the loss. and Like a reliquary. Yeah, like a reliquary. Mm. We spoke on the ba- that balcony in Salzburg about democratising access to avant-garde cinema. I created this film festival called Sunset Kino. You know, I labelled it as Austria's only outdoor avant-garde cinema. Different themes every year. This year is Smithereens. The name Smithereens, which I always love this word, but for me it came out of of course, experimental film in one regard. Aideen, when I invited you to Salzburg, I thought I'd have to give two evenings to Aideen. <laughs> two. <laughs> one, to present your film, Oblivion and Clustus. Mm. But then the second night, you know, I asked you to curate mm. a program of films with this theme in mind. Mm. You asked me to show two particular films, which both have a kind of a European connection, like Clostus, which was commissioned by... CONUS 2022, which was the European Capital of Culture last year, where I worked with nearly a thousand Lithuanian citizens to co-create and make this mostly stop motion animation film. So using that process of smithereens, smithereeny, you know, little bits. And I was really inspired. I mean, I know we're in the RTE studios, but what happened is in RTE in the 1980s, 
somebody in programming brought in these avant-garde Eastern European films and they put them on at popular TV hour uh, for children. And they were like Czech, uh, Soviet, Lithuanian, Eastern European, Baltic filmmakers who were making avant-garde experimental film, Bekettian surrealism to talk about political oppression. So I saw Esther Schrankmarova, Yuri Laka, all of these incredible filmmakers who were facing censorship. But I saw them as a child in the 1980s and that aesthetic left me with this political sensibility of using surrealism to talk about oppression or growing up in a theocracy or being othered. So I brought that exact style of Eastern European filmmaking to that project of trying to get Lithuanians to fall in love with their architecture, which they had this kind of ambivalent relationship with since the war. Similar stories to Ireland in that they were a post-colonial country and they had lost the root of like why these, what we would call Art Deco, but what they call interwar modernist buildings and what formulated them and how they were constructed and who lived in them um, between 1919 and 1939. And often they were people of colour. It was a multicultural country. There were trans and non-binary artists. There was these incredible opera singers that lowered the floors of these buildings to invest in the architecture, to make it sing with them. And I worked with these citizens to create this story and I used that style that I was influenced by in the 1980s to create this stop motion animation. And so that was one of the films that was programmed, Clostus, which means folds or pleats, which is also the same kind of way that smithereens works. Like you fold time, you bend time in the creation of a stop motion animation. There's all these moments that are in between each photograph that you take to create this visual fiction. And then I also showed Oblivion Shock Maltot Kualuktatuk, which is commissioned by the Irish Traditional Music Archive and Music Network. And it merges two banned and outlawed musical forms of Irish harp and Inuit Canadian throat singing uh, to create an apocalyptic pop song that talks about being the last of the artists. And I collaborated with a whole load of musicians, Steve Shannon, Ashling Lyons, and a Canadian Inuit throat singer called Reet. And I showed that. You also had this exhibition called The Bleeding Tree, of course, and we see a complex video projection of a tree with an operatic soundtrack mm. playing. Those for the past maybe five years have been really interested in like this idea of banned and outlawed knowledge, moments of ritual, things that are done out of a, a space of resilience, right? So I've been really interested in the folklore archives that exist in University College Dublin and on the website ducus.ie. And a lot of Oblivion was built out of these stories from the bardic tales which exist in the folklore archives. And it's about older knowledge and how people, other Irish or our older selves, thought about being the last of the artists. And that's something that I'm kind of really concerned of is that I think we may be the last of the artists. And I'm really curious about how do you process that and where other people historically processed this dilemma that they could, thought they were going to be the last. So in 1937, Eamon de Valera, who I'm not really a fan of, uh, but he did do a kind of a really interesting project where he sent all nine-year-olds out to interview the oldest members of their village uh, or community and write down pishogs or stories or tales from that community. Any one of us can go and look into our local parish and we can find people that wrote the text down or the people who they'd interviewed. 
some of these nine-year-olds interviewed people who'd lived through the Irish famine. Like that gives you goose pimples to think of that kind of connection, how close that was. And uh, I was, I'm very interested in this idea of poisoned lands because the world is becoming poisoned. And I was specifically looking at this uh, folklore of dealing with things that poison you. One of the stories was the bleeding tree. Someone goes to cut down a blackthorn or hawthorn and a thorn goes into their hand and it poisons them and they die. And then somebody goes else to finish the job and they die. And so there's this like, it's a warning. The, the tree sings to them and says, you are cutting me. Don't cut me down. And I found that really uh, amazing because, I mean, this is the conversation we're having right now. Our relationship with the natural world is breaking down. So I thought I'm going to turn the story from the folklore archive of this bleeding tree. And also there's this tradition in the West of Ireland that uh, women used to take their afterbirths and put them on the roots of these hawthorn and blackthorn trees. I mean, you kind of hear more about animals, the afterbirths of cows and cattle. But also when we joined the European Union in 1973, and now we're kind of discussing our European connection, we got all this money to make these motorways. We used to drive the Germans mad that we'd make these motorways go around to these crops of trees or fairy trees, we call them. But in a weird way, when you think of it, I, I liked the idea or the metaphor that they are us, they they hold our matrixial line, lineage through our DNA in these trees in some way. And maybe if we would just reestablish this metaphor, we might have a better connection with Europe. So when you approached me about this show in Salzburg, which is the capital in the world for opera, I'm going to make an opera out of this traditional story. So I worked with this incredible composer called Steve Shannon, who I've worked with loads of times, and he picked out this incredible soprano called Joan O'Malley and Mary Barnicut from Crash Ensemble as cellist. And we constructed this libretto, The Song of the Bleeding Tree, who sings a warning. And what was really uncanny is installing in 42 degree heat where we were cooking in the gallery the hottest week on Earth's record as it sung a warning to us. So it still sings this omen as I'm here talking to you, Seamus. So if I were to think of it like this idea of when when people think that they are the last, I, I'm also really kind of really affected by the works of other artists that are thinking about these topics of trauma, in particular like the work of Omar Fast, uh, who I know that you've had a really strong relationship. We had worked together before, but we were also, we are very good friends. Yeah, as we're walking through the city, he said, you know, Seamus, you live in this gorgeous lollipop landscape city, you're always living in beautiful places. I thought it was a good moment to turn to him and say, well, how about doing an exhibition here with me in, in, in Salzburg? And he said, I have an idea. I'm thinking about a Jewish fairy tale in the Austrian Alps. He began writing on the script, writing the script straight away, and effectively the film he made, we shot in Salzburg. The film begins with a woman uh, alone at a, waiting for a ski lift, and as she's going up the, the mountain, she realizes there's a, a man sitting beside her who's just suddenly appeared out of nowhere. And he's an acidic Jew wearing the black outfit and a black hat. And he sp begins speaking in Yiddish. And so she can pick up parts of it because, of course, Yiddish is a dialect of German. But she's a little bit put off by his presence. And he begins telling the story of a goldschmidt who is eventually seduced by a demon. And this isn't this old, typically tragic Jewish fairy tale. But at one point, you get the sense that she's feeling accosted. And she 
takes his hat and accidentally drops it off the ski lift, as one does. You usually just drop your, your glove <laughs> or your ski pole. And it's the hat. And the, the film goes to the next scene where we see a woman collecting things off the ski slopes and she picks up the hat and she goes to a different part of the ski resort with the hat down this long corridor, very dark space, and opens up this strange door and tosses the hat. And the reveal is that it's a room full of these black hats. And it's such an incredible moment in the film. Omer, of course, is from Israel and the States, and he confronts a lot of political topics in this film. He confronts trauma, as you mentioned. But this one was exactly the kind of film to show in that context mm. of Salzburg. It's a very bourgeois, very mm. beautiful city, but a city that's a bit of a bubble away mm. from the real world. I mean, I love Salzburg. It's a beautiful place. And you can escape reality there through culture, the city's offerings. And here we were presenting this film, which was quite tough going, uh, although elegantly so. And the tricky thing about the project was that Omer first wanted us to sh present the film in a hospital because he felt mm. a hospital setting is a place between life and death. Another space, a haunting. A haunted space. He didn't want it presented in the typical gallery setting. We couldn't get into a hospital, so we had to turn the entire gallery space into a, into a hospital. Um, we were able to get old hospital supplies and this, this topic of the, the Holocaust and the repression yeah. of the histories in it's that way. It's interesting Salzburg yeah. is a place where it isn't talked about. You see, having lived there for nine years, you, you would find people talking about it. But we also struggled with, with it. I felt that it was there every day. You, 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 know, you see the little plaques in the streets yes. that have... Uh, the family names yeah. of people that were, that were taken the, off, yeah. murdered, uh, sent the across previous street. owners of the houses and things like that. Yeah. yeah. The power of dealing with trauma head on. And history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both our kids were born in Salzburg. It was a concern for us when they'd begin to learn about this history because we should absolutely not ignore it. But at the same time, the tricky part of, let's say, looking at national, a sense of national guilt, where does your family fit into that when you're, you know, you consider yourself Irish, European, mm -hmm. um, and you're living in another country? How, how does that, how is that confronted? You, you feel in, in another sense when you have exhibitions or you work with artists confronting these topics, you are in a fairly specialized space mm -hmm. and to, to broadcast it out, to get the, the sense of discourse and dialogue with the public it can only go so far sometimes, but you you hope that the documentation, the Nachhaltigkeit, this this is this German word of of having the what you've done documented, it will mm -hmm. it will rise later and it's there in posterity. I think what you have done in the Kunstverein though was create a very uh, safe space. Yeah, absolutely, and I, mean, I think this idea of a safe space and a place to present political topics. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I very naively asked an artist to do something, and I've done that a number of times where I very naively asked Rabbi Moray if we could do this poster outside of the museum. Mm -hmm. And the poster is based on a pamphlet that would have been dropped over Lebanon in the 1980s, over Iraq in the 1990s, and later was used by the Israeli army, by the American army, and it's, it's a picture of a bomb. 
And in Arabic, it says, bomb, attack, you have 20 minutes to leave your home. These paper sheets dropped en masse over Beirut or over Baghdad, for example. And so Rabbi Moray's art is always confronting these political topics head on. Mm. I mean, he grew up seeing this. And the pamphlet was meant to be on, printed in, on, in a large format on the wall. And I said, what do you think about making it a, a poster outside the building, you know, outside, so it's facing the street, you know, as mm-hmm. uh, an artwork, but also an uh, mm-hmm. advertisement for the exhibition. He goes, Jim, this is a great idea. Let's do that. So we put it up, and the very next morning, my phone's ringing, and the staff are on the phone, and they're saying, Seamus, the police are here. They want us to evacuate the building. They believe that there's a bomb in the building. And, of course, we never even considered the possibility that this could be taken as anything but a work of art. So I had to cycle over as quickly as possible uh, and trying to rehearse in my head in German how to respond to both the police and the press who expected to be there. Rabbi Murray makes performances that merge fiction and reality. So often when I'm telling the story, I then kind of go into the part where I say, okay, at this point, Rabbi's voice takes over. And he was also on, the, uh, on his way because I'd called him and said, please come. And he arrives and the story he tells is this, that, you know, he sees the building, he sees a helicopter of the building, which I heard actually when I was cycling in, and it's surrounded by police. And he realizes that he's forgotten his passport. So he stops and he begins to run back to the hotel. Someone spots him. He, and he, when he is coming down the stairs uh, of the hotel, the police are there waiting for him and they take him into custody. And so I had to write this letter to the police commander uh, saying Rabbi Moray makes political work. His work is heavily invested in, in the Middle East and these topics, uh, geopolitical realities there. Could you please let him out? Because, you know, tomorrow he's meant to do a performance. This, this is his story, right? So this is the performance he did yeah. on the opening night. Was uh, He's showing slides of the poster, which... <laughs> And he shows slides of where it derived from, you know, these uh, pamphlets dropped over uh, the cities by, by the American and Israeli armies. And then he goes into the story called The Crocodile Who Ate the Sun, this marvelous story that's based out of a folktale that merges with the terrible situation in, in Lebanon, in Beirut, and his, mm-hmm. his brother who was shot by a sniper. And it's an incredible story where reality fiction and history all kind of come together because of course he was never arrested that didn't happen you know yeah. it could have happened but to the Salisbury police credit they let the whole thing just kind of die on the spot but we took the poster down and they said okay you know don't do that again but then I received a letter in the post two months later in German you know I was reading through this bureaucratic letter saying we need to inform you according to the such and such law that we have been surveilling you for the last two months. It's from the, it was from oh the police commando in Vienna for possible links to terrorist groups. So the Austrian law is that if you are under surveillance by the secret police they, and they find that there's nothing amiss there and there's no need to they've arrest du- you. They have a duty of care to let you know. They have a constitutional duty of care to inform you that you've been under surveillance. And so when I received this letter... Uh, Flan O'Brien, uh, in in its own way, it's a, a bizarre kind of a, 
Yeah. Naivete. Yeah. Naivete. Yeah. Naivete. You know, and I think there is a whole takes the word safety to a different level. Actually, there are political topics arising in different political apparatuses mm. can have different resonances, and we need to be aware. I was I was lucky. I like that, you know, we keep circling back in, into like folklore and how folklore is this kind of lever to talk about trauma in the same way that you've just kind of talked about that experience of the crocodile eating the sun. Um, and it's something that I'm really interested in this this notion as well, which also I think is a kind of a, a duplication here is like this uh, cultural diplomacy that we're both at play in, in our roles in Europe, I think. Yeah. Well, what about this time when you you took Ulysses as a, a sort oh, yeah. of springboard into a project in Hungary? Was so it was last year. It was only on last topic? year. Yeah, it was exactly like this. Uh, so when I was approached by the Department of Foreign Affairs, being curated by Sarah Graveau of Project Art Centre, I was aware that Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, was uh, going for re-election on a platform of hate and misogyny victimising the LGBTQI plus community. And at the same time, I was thinking about this role of like, what is the role of the artist and what is the role of talking about art in history and historical context? The the connection between the city of Sambathai in Hungary and Ulysses is Bloom's father is this Jewish man who is from Sambathai in Hungary. Ah, so they have a Bloomsday Festival every year. Oh. And there is the Bloom family home where there's an amazing sculpture to uh, Joyce just outside the house. So I was the first ever Irish artist to create a mural there. They had they, Each year they choose the winner of the Leopold Bloom Prize, which is a Hungarian Turner Prize effectively, to make these murals inspired by a chapter in James Joyce's Ulysses. So when you look at Sambathai, like it's a really, really old city, like three and a half thousand years old. So there's all these images and monuments to antiquity, Greek and Roman statues, trans and non-binary gods are all over the facades of these buildings. And yet this city is one of the ones that would have voted in favour of Victor Orban. So I immediately thought about using chapter three of Ulysses, which is Proteus. It's kind of a nod to Stephen Dedalus and the artist and simultaneously it's it's Joyce and it's Bloom. So the identity within the protagonist in that chapter is fluid for a start. And then it's called Proteus and Proteus was a trans and non-binary god who at any time could be fish, mammal, he, she, they, wind, sea, fire. Straight away, this is uh, an icon that I could use as this kind of cultural diplomacy. Shapeshifter. So I reached out to the LGBT community in Sambathai and Mm. I asked for some volunteers to work with me on co-creating this work of art. And I chose a etching of Proteus from the 16th century by Austro-Hungarian artist called Erasmus Finks. The Erasmus Project is actually named after Erasmus. But anyway, uh, I created this image of the god and I put it on the the side of the building. But we also used augmented reality and I taught the community how to use augmented reality so that they could manifest as this animation and make their own animation of a drag queen or king as Proteus. So for one community, when you scan it, it's the animation of Proteus comes to life. But for the community that's under 
such attack, they can make their own message of solidarity to that community that despite everything, there is a community of artists in Europe that are there and see them and offer solidarity and hope. And it's a permanent mural in Europe. It's permanent. Fantastic. And and so how, how did the public, the different communities respond it wasn't a very safe environment to be working in, to be quite mm. honest with you. We yeah. were working late at night on scaffolding. The young people are very obviously, you know, like gender non-conforming that I'm working with. So we were targeted regularly by groups of men. Had mm. to employ the uh, assistance of Project Art Centre on the ground with getting support to make sure that we were safe. That was kind of a bit scary. It was the first time ever I've ever felt so unsafe in Europe. But the local people loved it because... It looked like the aesthetic of this antiquity. But I'm also trying to normalise the presence of that community by that mural being present. So Mm. it's like, you know, what is gender anyway with something like this? I mean, it seems that with all these uh, images from antiquity, that's already over the city anyway. But then it's it's contemporary. Like, so you're using the lens. Yeah you know, in a really contemporary way to activate the mural. So it comes Mm. up on your phone and animates and then you see like a bearded lady, you know, (laughs) dancing in front of you or you see a message saying, you know, the inexplicable modality of the invisible, which is the line or the title of the piece, which is the talks about like what is visible and what is not invisible. So it's like it's very codified in a number of different ways. So it's accessible to, you know, the the geeky Joyce aficionados love it because it has... The text references to Stephen Dedalus, Joyce himself. It references the connection between Ireland and Sambathai, Dublin and Sambathai. Uh, yet at the same time, it's a message of hope for that community to say, don't forget Ireland was this space too, right? Exactly. And we see you and we are there for you. Yeah. And you can't stop progress. Before their continental riffs end, contributors are asked to nominate, in particular one item that for them catches something of the essence of Europe. Because we keep on talking about storytelling and folklore, I think the object is associated with a story that I heard that Irish pilgrims would travel to Europe during the, the medieval period and they would bring a small mirror with them and they would keep that mirror close to their heart and wrapped up in cloth. And then they'd go to these sites of pilgrimage where a relic would be unleashed or shown a piece of the cross, a bit of John the Baptist's head, (laughs) something like that. But then the mirror would be taken out and it would be shown to that object and then very quickly wrapped up and then taken back all the way back to Ireland. And what had happened was this kind of idea of transubstantiation the mirror would have absorbed the power of the relic and then it would become a relic all in its own. So I feel that is actually a metaphor for going into Europe. You go there to learn a bit more about who you are and you come back and you know a bit more about what's going on within the broader global context of where artistic production, discourse about sociopolitical issues is happening and you're bringing that back home. Mm. And that becomes this other power. Yeah, very yeah. poignant. That you use to, I don't know, in a Bichettian way or a well, Brechtian way, change the There's world. a link there to Joyce, actually, because oh. you remember in Ulysses, 
there's a bit about a cracked mirror That's right. being yes. the portrait of the Irish artist, yes, I believe yes, yeah. it was, yeah. if I remember correctly. What can you do with a broken mirror? Actually, there's a beautiful artwork by Kadratia. Do you know it? No, Where there's these so. Algerian artists living in France yeah. who takes a broken mirror and then sutures it back together again with wire and hangs on the wall. Beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. You know, and this beautiful connection there between... I'm sure it's accidental. I don't know. I mean, maybe he, maybe he uh, was also referencing Ulysses, but mm. it course to the fragmentation mm. of the self or the fragmentation of people through violence. In this case, this would have been certainly mm. out of, you know, the references to the difficulties in Algeria mm. and colonialism, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I, I love your object, the mirror, <laughs> or what I had thought of before coming to this studio relates to the story of the the Jewish fairy tale that Omer fast retells in this film and another film as well the hat of the Hasidic Jew which is thrown into the snow mm-hmm. uh, and then reappears that this conundrum of trauma repression the difficulties mm-hmm. of history how they keep resurfacing repeat 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 repeat, repeat. so you know for me it, it can't all be about despair uh because naturally the hat appears in this fantastic film mm. and is used as Omer as this device mm. that's powerful and makes you think, makes you confront things. In this case, of course, that's a quintessential European topic with the Holocaust and how, how to come back to it and how to look at it, how to face it. It's certainly been a German question and Austria has been a more difficult question, but something that they are coming to in a different way. But it's not all doom and gloom. It's very positive, actually. Yeah. Very, very positive. Yeah. And potent. And another object to tell a story with. Exactly, yeah. You've been listening to an edition of RT Radio's Continental Riffs with contributors Aideen Barry and Seamus Keeley. On the next edition of Continental Riffs, fashion designer, artist and writer Joanne Hines and composer, performer and theatre maker Julie Feeney Consider, among other things, a butter churn, collecting cloth swatches, the Irish language, and feelings around adequacy as an Irish person abroad. And of course, do check out for further episodes of Continental Riffs on RT Radio 1 and wherever you get your podcast. Until the next time, from me, Cleon and Ian Lewin, thank you for listening. <laughs>